This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Pamela Pavlishok, founder of Change Sciences, which works with organizations to design for well-being. Pamela, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show. So what does designing for well-being mean? Well, I still don't know after (laughs) all this time. I'm still looking. But I think, you know, I had this idea a couple of years ago when I'd been in tech for a long time, and maybe this has happened to you too, and people started complaining about how technology is chipping away at their well-being. Sometimes we frame it as it's taking too much of my attention or it's making me do things I don't want to do. But I I was really upset about that because yeah. I thought, well, here I've been going along thinking that I'm contributing positive things to people's lives and I'm not. So what do I do? Maybe I could open a bakery. That's always a fun idea and just get out of entirely. I may still fall back on that one. Um, But my other idea was to try to understand that because there's been so much research in what constitutes well-being at an individual level and also kind of on a societal level Mm -hmm. and wanted to see if I could translate some of that to the tech world. I'll tell you, I was on vacation last week. We went to a very nice resort, but I had this moment not to be judgy, <laughs> but like my family has always made a point of not using our phones and, and that kind of thing during dinner. And we made we made a point of that for a reason, because we knew that otherwise we, we would be doing that. And that's not something that we wanted. And when we go to a restaurant or whatever, you often see families or whatever with kids using devices and sometimes parents doing it as well. And I sort of had this, it was like an Alfred Hitchcock moment where we were at dinner on vacation and everyone there is on vacation. It's very different than like being at a restaurant around your house. And um, the number of people that I saw not paying attention to each other, husbands and wives just sitting at a table by themselves on their phones, not paying attention to each other at all or talking. Again, not to be judgy, but like it really, it was like, oh my, and I'm looking around from table and no one is talking to each other. No one's interacting with each other. And I just had this moment. I've gotten over it a little bit, but I I just had this moment where like, oh, this is a problem. Like, I think it's a problem and I am contributing to this problem in my work. Yeah, I think that's the kind of awareness that we're all starting to have, and it manifests in various ways. So you can have those moments, sort of like, you know, black mirror moments, where you're like, oh my God. Well, then I promptly came home and started watching the new season of Black Mirror, and uh, it sort of underscored the whole thing for me, too. Yeah. Uh, That's going to be our our next podcast chat, is we're just going to go over, like, you know, all of the, each episode of Black Mirror and redesign it for well being. That's actually not a bad idea, but um, 
anyway, um, I do think like that's the kind of a growing awareness we're having it and we're having it in all kinds of different ways. I think right now, a lot of the conversation and how I first came to really feel it is this idea of attention. Like we're paying attention to the wrong things. We're distracted. We're not paying attention to the right things. Now it's kind of evolved into we're cutting ourselves off from people in various ways. We're not as open to conversations, to differences of opinion. We're in our filter bubbles. So we've seen that. I kind of think the next wave of this and what I'm thinking about now is emotional intelligence and how we Mm -hmm. bring that to not only our use of technology, but how we design technology and how we can sort of find that balance because putting down our phones all the time is not very realistic. We can do it for dinner. We can do it on vacation, but you know, it's not going to like, we can't completely get rid of, of technology. We're not going to go backwards and we need to figure out how to live with it. And that's how it's always been. I mean, technology, Mm -hmm. we design technology, technology designs us. And we haven't found that because maybe it's because of the pace, maybe it's because of the values that we have to design for, which are, you know, engagement-based or Mm -hmm. simply conversion-based measures that prompts us to keep people online all the time. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's finding that balance. So how how might someone who's thinking about or working on a new product, a new business, given those sort of constraints, like I need to build a product that people want to use and hopefully they want to use it a lot. What are some of the things we might be able to do to, to incorporate the design thinking that you're doing into our own work? I think the starting point first is expanding how we define success. So it's we're not going to get rid of success that's defined as getting more people to use it or to sign up or even to spend time. We're probably still going to have those. But mm-hmm. what we can do is balance that out with other things that we're paying attention to, how it contributes to meaningful conversations to setting up meetings offline. It kind of depends on what the particular application is, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot we can look at and we can draw inspiration from a lot of the um, efforts on a country level that is happening with incorporating well-being. So for a long time, we've just had the GDP Mm-hmm. as the measure of success and maybe sports <laughs> for like how do countries measure success, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, economic output, maybe sports sometimes. Now in the past decade, we've seen a move towards a lot of other things like environment, education, healthcare, things that look beyond just engaging an individual in buying things or selling things, but instead larger quality of life and quality of community Mm -hmm. and society. And so I think that's one thing we can do is find those kinds of set those goals Mm -hmm. and challenge ourselves to to kind of balance out the more typical goals. Do you have an example that you can share from your work, maybe that Change Sciences has done with a, a client to put something concrete yeah. Well, it's hard because they're all under NDA. Yeah. Okay. Darn but, it. Yeah. But I can give a, like a more hypothetical 
hypothetical or, you know, uh, I don't know, white labeled (laughs) version of it. Um, So for instance, we've had um, clients who are working in creating a work environment that is designed around not just, you know, recruiting more people, but also helping create a sense of well-being internally. And so what they looked at was, okay, first of all, how can we even measure this? What are the appropriate things that we can look at to have that kind of impact? And then how are we going to kind of redesign our organization around this and many of the technologies that are used, you know, within the organization around those goals and kind of set our marks toward that. So it's kind of a program of developing, you know, things beyond just monetary value that you're going to measure, then implementing whatever it is, practices, technologies that support those values and following up on that. There's, you know, some traditions for that already but they're mostly academic and I feel like they need to be brought to our practitioner community. Like value sensitive design is very much an influence. And the whole thought behind that is, okay, let's try to understand all the inputs and value for that and uh, create value for that. That's interesting because that touches on something that I was hoping that we could talk about, which was the different areas of design and and how you apply them to the work. So you said value... Value Value-sensitive design. Yeah. And then you described it and you said the value is the value you're you're assigning to the inputs? So in that particular case, and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different kind of threads of design coming together right now, but in value-sensitive design, you're looking at values of the stakeholders. You're looking at values of who will benefit, who will be harmed, values of culture, values of society. So very much looking at more of a systems level approach rather than a business centered approach or Mm -hmm. an individual centered approach. So that really shakes up a lot of our practices if you think about it, because we're very much focused on the individual, the user (laughs) in the moment of interacting with your thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, And the business goals, we haven't set our sites in a very systematic way on things larger than that, like community impact or social impact or things like that. So I think that's an aspect that we need to spend a little more time thinking about. So what are some of the tools that you might use when you're brought into one of these projects? F- I always have a hard time pronouncing this for some reason. It's not a difficult word. So you can say it, ethnography. <laughs> you did it. Okay, there we go. Ethnographic interviews <laughs> yeah. and things like that. Well, so so my background is in research. And yeah. so I always bring that to every project. And I think where we start with this is looking at our methods in a lot of ways. And so ethnographic approach does inform it. I want to kind of expand out what we're doing. And when I work with clients, we tend to look at methods that give voice to a broader range of people than are normally included Mm -hmm. in the design process. And so we're doing a lot of co-design and workshops that are participatory, not just team, not just internally, but with people 
whose lives will be impacted Mm -hmm. by whatever it is that we're creating. And often not just, you know, uh, an end user, but other community members and things like that. So I think it's, it's both of those approaches. I'm very interested in what we can borrow from psychology too. We haven't really done that much of that in our field besides figuring out how we can persuade people to do things. I was just about to say the same thing. (laughs) I I think, so I was talking to a potential customer over the last few weeks and they wanted to know like whether we had read Nudge. And for those who don't know, that's a book which talks about how you persuade people basically by nudging them uh, and little little social cues and those kinds of things which cause people to either have different behavior than they otherwise would or use your product or engage over and over again. And so I feel like from that point of perspective, there are people out there thinking about it, but it's entirely from that business-driven angle, not from the, well, as you put it, like the impact angle, uh, like the people who are going to be affected by what we build. Yeah, I I think that's true. So we've thought about psychology really narrowly in a way when it comes to design and mostly about persuading Mm -hmm. people or there's been, and it's not just in the design world, it's everywhere. There's been this fascination with cognitive biases and how irrational we are, but it's a predictable thing that can be exploited. And that's problematic. You know, I think there's a lot more we could do related to people's individual psychology and their emotional um, response that we're not really thinking about. And that's kind of the next thing that I've really gotten interested in is artificial intelligence that's related to emotion sensing. Because at first I thought, wow, this is this is really fascinating. There's some potential here for technology that truly understands our emotions and has empathy for us and kind of gets it. And that softens, you know, the blow of the coming dystopian AI robot takeover and such. (laughs) But I think, you know, what's coming to the fore is that we don't really understand a lot of things about our psychology, our emotion um, that we thought we understood, you know, and I think emotion is, is, is a great example of an area that's undergoing a huge amount of upheaval. So all the technology is based on one theory about emotion that you see a bear and you get scared and you run or your face is like Mm -hmm. screaming or whatever, and that can be detected. But what we're learning more and more is a lot of our emotions are cultural are learned there's like we have a big bucket that's maybe fear or anger but there's a lot of different things in that bucket and they can't they don't all come out on your face or in your pulse rate or in your you know so Mm -hmm. i think like that's really that has a lot of implications for the next wave of technology and things that we have not even begun to explore when we're designing technology i mean when we design for emotion now it's really like hey, let's make people happy for a minute so they stay on our site, you know? And I think we're all realizing like, well, okay, that only goes so far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So at what stage do you think people need to be incorporating this into their work, into their product? Is this something that only people who build big products used by millions of people need to think about? Or or (laughs) 
I think I probably know your answer, but it's a very leading question. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, very leading question. I mean, obviously, everyone needs to do it, and of course, they should probably hire me. So um, <laughs> that, that makes a ton of sense. No, I, I do think that this is not something on the fringe anymore. I mean, since I, I became interested in this and started learning about it, and I'm still learning about it very much so at this point, you know, I kind of started on this journey a couple of years ago. By this point, I feel like there's a lot of people in the tech and design world who are interested in what kind of impact technology is having on our society, on an emotional level, a personal level, a psychological level. And we're still just starting to understand that, of course, but there are, you know, big companies are banding together and trying to come up with guidelines. Lots of organizations and professional societies are, I've been involved a little bit with IEEE has come out with a standard for um, ethically aligned artificial intelligence, which you've probably seen circulating around, you know, there's been lots of talk and concern about this. And I, I don't think yeah. anyone's really has it figured out yet, but I think it's very hopeful that we're all thinking about it and everyone is trying to apply new ways to approach it. Yeah. One of the things that we did at ThoughtBot recently was we had an existing purpose and values list and we wrote about this on the blog afterwards so we can link it in the show notes but we reviewed our values through the lens of ethics and how what we're building affects people and what we wanna be doing, improving the world rather than making it worse. And made, even just in all told, like the actual words we changed were a handful probably. Um, But making sure to incorporate those ideas of well-being and humanity into our values and the work that we're doing, I think, hopefully sets a a standard for us moving forward that we can point to of what we want to do. And we base that off of some existing sort of ethics codes for engineering and and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that that's an area where we still probably need some design leadership Mm -hmm. on. There's not as much as far as ethical guidelines. There's some statements, like I think all the professional organizations have a statement about um, ethics, but, you know, ACM and IEEE and all of those kinds of agencies are really standards and they're working on standards in this area. And I think that's incredibly helpful and communities should all come together around those. And I think, you know, probably it's from what it's sounding like your group did and, and how I work with clients, the more specific, the better, right? Because so far our ethics when it comes to AI or robots has always been like, do no harm, kind of like the right. Hippocratic Oath, right? And that's sort of, to me, I'm like, well, that's kind of like the least we could do, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So, and that's the nice thing about well-being is it gives you something that's not a negative, right? Mm-hmm. So even if like your overarching principle, which could be, you know, humans will flourish, right? Or humans will take precedence over all else you can have within that a lot of specificity because we know a lot about well-being we know that authentic social connection lengthens our lives um you know makes us feel happier you know has all these positive benefits to us as individuals and to society now what does that mean 
well, then that's the next level of specificity. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, how are we going to build that? It's not just enough to connect people as, you know, a Facebook friend where you see, you know, right. the post of their beautiful child once a year and then the, a bunch of angry political posts. Um, it's got to be something else to the next step of what, okay, well, what about social relationships supports well-being? Oh, well, we know it's you know, we're going to aim for these three things. And so mm-hmm. I think it's that kind of thinking where you you set out maybe three or four big guidelines and then say, okay, well, how are we going to fulfill these? And let's look a little bit to, you know, what we know about this, because there's, a, you know, that's been going on for ages. Philosophers, psychologists, mm-hmm. historians are all thinking about, sociologists thinking about well-being, and we can learn a lot from that. Is there a mistake that some companies or or product companies make that's concrete? Like when we're approaching A-B testing or something like that, like how are we approaching that that maybe is wrong that could incorporate some of these ideas or that could be better or make sure we're looking at it the right way? Can we sometimes get off track by looking at qualitative versus quantitative data or those kinds of things? Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. I think we tend... To, depends on the organization, but we mm-hmm. tend to overvalue quantitative a lot of times because mm-hmm. it's like, wow, look at all these people. Look at these numbers. Right. Look at what they're doing. And, and it, the numbers it feels, don't lie, right? It's hard to say, yeah. no, we feel it should be this way. No, well, look at the numbers. They, they don't, they're showing yeah. it should be the other way. Look at the numbers. And the numbers are often preset to measure these things that are not going to contribute to our well-being. Like, how long do people spend on their site? That's something your analytics are going to tell you. How many pages do they visit? How far down do they scroll? All of these things that track engagement that might not be the best measure for people. The best measure might be, like, did they find what they need to do their bigger goal that didn't have anything to do with your website mm-hmm. or app. That's what you need qualitative for. That's what you need other kinds of research methods for is to figure out, you know, what are those things? How should we measure them? How can we track those when it's not already embedded in our analytics or we can't just like A, B test it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's an area that a lot of organizations, it's a trap that we tend to fall into pretty easily. Good. I think that that's helpful. If people want to learn more, I know you have a book coming out in the next month or so. So is that going to be a resource for people who are designers and want to incorporate these thoughts into their work? Yeah. So the book outlines some principles that you can use that are derived from the many different frameworks. And I've tried to simplify that because I think that's what puts people off a lot of times is is that complexity when it's really not that complicated. Yeah. It's pretty simple. So it has some principles. It has some techniques that you can use. It has some good examples of companies that have tried to incorporate that or are simply demonstrating a good practice that can be followed. So that can definitely be a resource. And can people find out more about that book or pre-order it now? Yeah, you can pre-order it on Amazon and probably if you have Safari, you know, books through Mm -hmm. O'Reilly, you can get access to something there too. Yeah, and we can include a a link to that in the show notes as well so people can uh, get it in your podcast player. So tell me more about Change Sciences. How long have you been at that? Oh, boy. We've been around for 
almost 20 years now. So I started out in tech. Well, actually, you know, I'm like a lot of people. And I don't know if you're like this too, but I completely started in something else. I was studying Russian literature and <laughs> I was doing a lot of traveling. And then I finally, when I got to, you know, sort of done with that wave of traveling and settled down, I'm like, oh, technology, this looks really interesting went back to uh, University of Michigan, got a degree in human computer interaction, and was sort of working before that first tech bubble in, mm -hmm. in agencies. And then when that happened, I was like, you know, I really just want to get a dog and sort of like do my own thing for a while. <laughs> and and it, it evolved out of that. So, you know, when we first started, it was really doing a little bit of everything as mm -hmm. everyone was doing in sort of the early aughts. And now it's evolved to more research and strategy work. Mm -hmm. And how big is the team? We have, well, it, it varies because we're remote mm -hmm. and we're on demand, some of us. So, but our core team is usually around 10 people. Keep it small. <laughs> and was building a sort of a remote team a conscious choice to start? It really wasn't. So when we started out, well, at first it was just me, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's like added on. And over the years I've gone back and forth. We had an office for a while. And then I think everyone, especially me, came to the realization like, hey, I don't really want to work in an office every day anymore. Why am I doing this? I want flexibility, you know. And so it's it sort of gradually dawned on us that oh yeah remote work is better and we had a couple of folks who moved away but said oh you know I'd still like to work mm -hmm. with you and, oh that's cool yeah we can we can do that <laughs> so how does that work for the client work are are people traveling a lot or are you doing things remotely it's a mix mm -hmm. I think um a lot of research now is remote a lot of our meetings are remote but we tend to always have some time to come together face-to-face. -face. Always a good practice to do that. And some of our research we do, it's very intense and we have to be on site and mm -hmm. all working together. So it's kind of a mix. I always think to myself that it's probably a pretty good place to be if you're an introvert <laughs> because even if we have days where it's like people, 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 you know, research or client work, then you also have days where it's you're doing just a lot of think time on your own mm -hmm. back in wherever you are and, and writing and thinking and, and working on projects. And you're based in New York City, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Are a lot of your clients in New York City too, or are they all over the place? They tend to be all over the place, mm -hmm. although I feel like we have a pretty strong New York influence because one thing I really love about New York is we have a little bit of everything. It's not just about tech, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have entertainment and financial and fashion and art and, you know, all of that is coming together and makes it a very mm -hmm. diverse and rich, interesting place to be and work. Yeah. I ask as ThoughtBot's a consulting company and agency, a lot of listeners I know have worked at agencies or currently do. So I think lots of people are interested in how different agencies work and, and that kind of thing. And for example, at ThoughtBot, we're not remote. We have we went through a period of time over our, our 14 years where we had an office, but a bunch of us were remote and we coalesced around 
having more close personal relationships with each other and being and our clients and being in person. And then ultimately said, well, is there a way we could have best of both worlds, which it would be local studios where people can mm. live where they, they want to live and we can connect with our local communities and, and local clients, but we don't need to be a distributed remote team. And so that's what we've done. And as a result, one of the th- we have clients all over the place, but they're working with a local studio. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think we're not quite large enough for Mm -hmm. that. But that is something that's come up recently. Like, uh, wouldn't it be great if we had a little co-working space here or another one there Mm -hmm. to kind of help things along? So, And it's so easy now to find those spaces. I mean, if you just think back. Yeah, things have definitely changed. 10 years, it was just much more difficult to do all of that. And now it's so much easier. Mm -hmm. And I guess I should add here, you know, being in tech while being a woman, I've also found remote really nice for balancing things Mm. out. I have kids, you know, other folks in our organization have families and having that kind of flexibility is pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that makes a big difference. It started with a dog though, you know, (laughs) it usually does start with a pet. (laughs) So, you made the comment, well, we're not that big. Do you have a growth plan? Like, would you love to be bigger or, or are you happy with the way things are now? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I kind of like keeping it small. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know. I think everyone has this. You have to find your entrepreneurial style in a way. Um, I really don't enjoy managing people mm-hmm. <laughs> that much or that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I like mentoring and mm-hmm. I hope I'm I'm generous with that and good at that but I really enjoy doing the work too yeah so for me I think growing has always meant like oh gosh I'm gonna have to step back and be more of like mm-hmm. the boss maybe I'm just not being creative enough in how I think about it <laughs> well but- this was one of the things that was very important to me was to not get to the point where I'm you know not doing development that couldn't call myself a developer anymore. When what was useful for me was making sure that I prioritized that as a value and in my schedule and blocking off specific amount of time each week where I could continue to work on a project. Yeah, no, that, I think that makes a lot of sense to do that. For a little while, it was actually really healthy because I think left to our own devices a CEO or a founder or uh, someone who is an executive will probably do a lot of things which aren't very valuable to the organization. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) If current times are any evidence (laughs) of that. (laughs) Right. And so I found that limiting my time and saying, I really only have two days a week worth of time to be doing executive things, business things, non-development things, meant that I needed to force myself to prioritize and only do the most important things during that time. So it was it was really helpful for me to do that way. And even as we grew to be able to maintain that time where I was doing product design and development. Yeah, I think it's a challenge a lot of us face yeah. because 
you know, I think a lot of folks get into this and they, they start freelancing or start a company and because they really like it, you know, right. and they want to be flexible. And then it's like, oh, wait, whoa, wait a second here. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. And it's not as, you know, I call it like the treadmill. So like you get into it because you think it's going to be easier and you grow to a few people because you think it's going to be easier but once you get on that, it's very difficult to stop. Like, it's hard to support four people continuously. One of the only ways to do it is to grow more. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have <laughs> so even more true. people that you need to support. <laughs> and then you're at the point, you're up in the middle of the night, and you're like, oh, my gosh, how many mortgages are <laughs> am I holding right now? Right, right. <laughs> so you are teaching, though, right? Yeah, I teach at Pratt Institute in the city, and that's been really great. You know, I love teaching. Something about teaching, it crystallizes mm -hmm. what you knew or you think you knew. Yeah. <laughs> and, so how do you balance that time in your schedule? That is, for me, I don't know, I feel like that's something I can easily prioritize because it's so related to my work that mm -hmm. I'm doing. And I presume you're being paid for it, right? Uh, right. <laughs> so Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so that helps too. <laughs> but I think of it as sort of my little experimental think tank where I can mm -hmm. try out ideas because I think change science is being research and strategy focused. A lot of people are doing that in-house now, and that's amazing. I think, you know, everyone's doing usability testing in-house. That's great. I get hired for the weird stuff that you're not going to do in-house a lot of times. Uh -huh. But clients don't re really want to be the test bed for that sometimes, you know, first time out for something. So I think for me, the classroom's really exciting because you have a lot of people who are excited about the field. They're open they want to try a bunch of things and experiment and it kind of gives me a little space to do that and to question things and to say well what if we tried this what if we did this and that that's exciting for me so that's been a lot of fun and it's been pretty humbling because everyone in my classes is super smart and talented <laughs> <laughs> so that is amazing to see and it makes me feel great about the future of the field as well. That's great. And are the people in your classes, are they designers? Yeah, it's so it's graduate level. I'm mm -hmm. based in the School of Information. So mm -hmm. they have a track that's a user experience track. Mm -hmm. And so they and occasionally we get folks because Pratt is mostly a design school. We'll get people from industrial design right. or those kind of tracks too occasionally in classes we already mentioned the book which people can check out in the show notes and online at amazon if people want to follow you what's a good place for them to do that probably on twitter mm -hmm. i'm not the most uh, active person on twitter well you know i go through phases i think yeah. everyone does that so i'll find certain times i'm like oh yes i'm here I am. <laughs> and then other times, like, whoa, it's getting to be too much. I think we all have that 
those moments these days, but Twitter is great. And of course, changesciences.com is another good place. And I guess I should also mention we're experimenting as a research organization. We try out a lot of different tools for all kinds of different research. We've developed one in-house called mm -hmm. Sounding Box that does a lot of different types of research, but basically easily blends qualitative and quantitative together, which is always kind of a challenge. So that's sounding box is another thing that people can take a look at too. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 261. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together. <laughs>